This is Susan Eisenberg, and you are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. And some of it is, you know, some of it's bound up with our economic system. We have a winner-take-all form of late-stage capitalism that in every domain is squeezing out competition and allowing for monopolistic practices that harms people in the supply chain. You know, there's there's like, there's a reason that Trump uh, doesn't pay his contractors. And there's a reason that all the billionaires he hangs out with doesn't pay their contractors. Because they can here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Uh, we are on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. Um, and uh, today you might be wondering who I am, because it's not usually me introducing the show, it's usually Justin. But we are Justin-less today. It is our first official Justin-less episode, so I apologize. Uh, Justin had other things that were more pressing, and we had to get this done today, so... Um, joining me today, though, is... Anthony Cars of GeekDad.com and Forbes.com and a few other dot-coms I'm sure I've forgotten. <laughs> Welcome back, Anthony. It's good to have you back. It's always good to be back. Um, so it is not completely random that Anthony is here. Um, we actually, today's guest, we, uh, we talked to him, so he was going to be here anyway, so it is just fortuitous that, um, well, not fortuitous, that's kind of the wrong word, but, uh, it's, it worked out that Justin couldn't make it, so, uh, the two of us are here. It's not just me jabbering away in your ear. Um, <laughs> but how have you been, Anthony, since the last time we had you here? I have been good. It's been, uh, you know, it, it's hard to, uh, to, you know, go week in week out without uh recording everything that i do and uh putting it in a podcast um because you know it's it's i've had a taste you've right? had it's, a taste it's, it's it's all i want now is just to you know podcast everything it's like that magic elixir you know or or cocaine it's like one hit and then you're you're hooked for life right totally totally it's like i could i could be i could be recording this from you know tens of people to listen to right now <laughs> good Surprise! You are. <laughs> Tens of people <laughs> might be listening to you right now. <laughs> I said, "Oh, it's such a rush." <laughs> um, well, let's get to it though. So today we talked to Corey Doctorow. Um, if you are familiar with Boing Boing online, or if you're familiar with um, the internet, you probably know Corey. Um, he's been around for forever in terms of in, you know, in the internet uh, timeline, uh, like in, in the internet. It, when you're you're charting things, how old they are by internet terms, um, Corey's been around for a long time. He's he's um, in the early strata. The early strata, yeah. If you dig down far enough, you'll find you'll find where he began. Yeah, the the, uh, the Corey Doctorow layer. <laughs> um, but uh, he has a new book out. It is his first. What he's been calling his first adult novel in uh, almost ten years, I think. He was he's been writing in that time. It's not like oh, he's yeah. been just sitting around twiddling his thumbs. 
Um, he, he writes regularly on Boing Boing and other sites, and uh, he's kinda, he's had a few young adult novels. Yep. Um, but uh, this, so this is Walk Away. This is his first adult novel in, in quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we chatted to him about that and about a lot of other stuff. And I have to say, this... this uh, it, I don't know if I would say it took a surprising turn, but it uh, it went in some places that I probably didn't expect the conversation to go. Let's just say that uh, Corey has opinions on things, and uh, he is he is more than willing to share them. <laughs> it's very true. He, uh, he people accuse me of being a talker. Corey's a talker, um, <laughs> and we we basically just had to set him up with a couple questions, and, and he went to town. He just took it from there, but. Um, you know the book. The the book was it's it's a near future dystopia. It's it's kind of if you take the the current fractious, not even political climate, but socioeconomic climate, and just you tease that out to the the most ridiculous possible ending, um, as far as uh, you know, stratas of of uh, wealth and you know inequalities um, right. among the classes and that's where you end up with walkaway uh, and it's uh it's it's really it's interesting because it's one of those thought experiments where you can you can kind of trace it back and you're like oh you know what i see why he did that because mm. i can see like the seed of that if you took this and said okay well let's just take you know the one percent and what would happen if we just give them you know everything that they're looking for what would that look like um and it's it's really fascinating what i thought was really interesting though is that he's calling it an optimistic dystopia Um, (laughs) i haven't gotten to the optimism yet (laughs) but it's 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 interesting in that when you think of uh you know dystopic stories and dystopias it's it's always you know, neighbors turning on each other and killing mm. one another, and you know the world has just gone to hell, and and you can't trust anybody because you know everybody's just out for themselves, and that's such a familiar story. You know, whether you're talking yeah. about something like The Walking Dead or any zombie movie or anything, you know, it's always like you gotta watch out for yourself because your your sweet little you know eighty year old lady living next door is going to come at you with a shotgun. Right. Um, and what he has done with Walk Away is sort of flip that on its head. You know, he's like, well, what if people, what if the society we lived in was actually helpful? You know, like mm. maybe, if not benevolent, but a little bit more altruistic than we usually see in these types of stories. Yeah. Um, and so, like you're saying, like, he takes it to the to that extreme, and he's saying, like, what if... What 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 if you know we didn't turn out to be in- incredibly xenophobic? What if we didn't turn out to be incredibly um, you know racist toward one another? Or you know it's like it's only about me. It's I gotta get mine. You know it's like what if you you want to help your neighbor? You know and it's yeah we're all in this together and the only way we're gonna survive is if we kind of work together. So um, I mean it's not like a I wouldn't say it's necessarily a feel good book um, in in you know in that sense, but it's definitely different than what you might think just by reading like the book description yeah yeah I, as you get into it farther um the thing that i i loved that you know the means of production are kind of uh loosened up i mean it's so it's like you've got you know the one percent and you've got everybody else um but that everybody else is like working on things like oh let's see if we can get to space or let's see if we can you know solve the mortality problem 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, these are people who have supposedly, you know, given up everything. You know, they, it's like we have left society. Um, but then, yeah, they they build something that you know they're achieving incredible things um, by by walking away. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there there is a, it's it's more hopeful than you would think, definitely. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, I think that's enough of us talking. We're gonna let's go in and listen to that right now. Corey Doctorow it was a fascinating conversation. Stick with us, um, and uh, you won't be disappointed. Um, let's begin with uh, Walk Away. Uh, it's your it's your first adult in quotes novel in almost ten years. So I'm just curious, why now? Why now return to that? Well. You know, I, I had written material for adults continuously over the decade. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote a collaborative novel with Charlie Strauss and, and a couple of major novellas, including one called The Man Who Sold the Moon, that was really a dry run for Walkaway. And, you know, I think of um, the distinction between YA and adult as being really about what happens when a young adult librarian gives it to a kid without knowing anything about that kid and their parents. Right. And for me, it's YA. If the librarian can do that and know for sure that they won't get fired, hmm. and if there's a chance they'll get fired because of what's in the book, then it's probably not YA, which isn't to say that kids can't read it or shouldn't read it, but that rather it may be situational based on the kid. And there are some themes that you want to tackle that are just bigger than you can fit into stuff that all kids would find okay reading there's there's a complexity of subject matter there's a complexity of approach um even even the complexity of the of the narrative style where you know YA tends to be single point of view straight ahead linear linear plot whereas you know adult novels can uh, be more in the round they can have ensemble casts they can approach their subject from lots of angles and i wanted to tell a story that was bigger than than the very tightly plotted um very personal stories that you get in in YA novels. You know, I think of a science fiction novel as being kind of a, a cog works where you have this very small, very powerful cog that is the the character, and you have this much larger cog that's driven by the small one, and that's the world. And the character revolves and revolves until you've done a full revolution of the world, and the the character is kind of a microcosm of the of the world of the story. And I wanted a much more complicated world. I wanted a world that was a kind of multivalent and about all of the different crunchy, chewy things that are going on today in technology, in economics, and in how we relate to each other that um, I could I could say more about than you could get with the relatively simplistic yeah. clockwork of a YA. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I like I like your description there. I like the analogy of, you know, like for the librarian and I like the way that you differentiated between between the two because I think too often people, the difference between YA and quote unquote adult is so nebulous that a lot of people don't really understand what the difference is or why they're categorized as different things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's also this other element of of like those categories, which is that they're a discovery mechanism. You know, if you look at uh, the world, like oftentimes it's like, oh, it's just big publishing trying to, you know, be in being jerks but if you actually look at what happens when big publishing gets out of the way if you look at like the amazon self-published marketplace it's it's not less categorized it's more categorized mm. it's full of tags like you know vampire werewolf romance right right, right. that um you know solve this very hard problem we have in the 21st century you know and in, in when i was a kid going to mall bookstores with maybe you know eight thousand books on the shelf the hard part was figuring which one of those 
might be interesting to me uh, or, or which will be the least least boring to me mm. oftentimes because I'd already have bought all the ones that looked obviously interesting. <laughs> and in the 21st century, we have the opposite problem, right? It's like in a world where there's more stuff that I know about that I know I'll enjoy, how do I triage that to the stuff that I know I'll enjoy the most? Right. It's not a bad problem to have though, right? No, you know, getting back to the theme of the novel, you know, who said abundance was going to be easy, but but uh, it sure beats the alternative, right? Absolutely. So, <laughs> so Walk Away is not a typical post-apocalyptic story. Uh, you, you describe it as an optimistic disaster novel. Um, no one is left behind. It's a future where people work together. Why do you think that's a message that we need to hear right now? Well, you know, we have... Um, we have these these uh, funny ideas about what's going to happen in times of disaster, and I think a lot of it stems from lazy storytelling. Uh, all storytelling involves things going wrong because that's where the narrative juice comes from. Uh, but it's really easy to say, okay, the things went wrong, and then the tension ratcheted up because when the things went wrong, everybody around lost their shit and. Mm. Uh, was completely bananas and and you know turned around and ate their neighbors and uh, the reality is actually that when things go wrong it tends to be some of humanity's finest moments right those are the times when people come to the fore and like rise to the occasion and you know the sort of keep calm and carry on people lifting buses off of you know mothers who are trapped underneath them and and like these these are the moments when when humanity is at its most noble because that like a lot of the time when you see someone who's who seems to be struggling you're not sure whether they thank you for helping them mm -hmm. and you know you don't want to you don't want to get in you don't want to make things worse by by being too nosy but Oftentimes in crisis, like that, uh, that ambiguity is collapsed. You know that everybody needs your help, and it's a chance for you and them to work together to, to, you know, better the species and its situation. And so, I I think that like we have this horrible intuition that's been informed by these these lazy stories that when things go wrong, we should we should uh, mistrust our neighbors rather than pitching in to help them, and that has some real world effects. Uh, Rebecca Solnit in her book, Paradise Built in Hell, documents this thing called elite panic, which are these preemptive strikes against the great masses in times of crisis on the grounds that we all know for sure that they're, that they're gonna turn on each other. And those just get in the way of, of fixing things. And so I wanted to give people stories that they could bring to mind easily of that nobility in times of crisis instead of that wickedness in times of crisis. Yeah. It, I mean, this might just be the cynic in me or, or I don't know where it's coming from, but I mean, it seems that the optimism that you put in the book and, you know, that you're talking about now is, is, is kind of what makes it fiction, you know, for me, and especially now in 2017, um, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like a future toward which we're heading. Um, and so, I mean, you must've been writing the book during the last, during the presidential election. So I'm wondering how much the election and, and the events and the mindset and the attitudes that were coming, bubbling up to the surface during that time, how much did that influence the story and, and where you were going to take it? Well, so the book was absolutely all in the can long before the oh, election. Okay. Okay. Uh, but 
the election is the American surfacing of a phenomenon that is older and wider than Trumpism. Mm -hmm. You know, my Hungarian and Polish friends have been telling me, and not to mention my Russian friends, have been telling me for years that, you know, what they're going through is what we're going to go through, that, mm -hmm. that this is a global phenomenon. It's not, it's not just Viktor Orban. It's not just Bashar al-Assad. It is something that is alive in the world today. Um, and so this book was really about countering that, right? Countering that belief that other people are the source of your problems rather than your savior. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's the, that's the thing that I think we get with, with, um, with technology is the ability to find other people and collaborate with them in ways that we've never been able to before. And one element of that is that people who have fringe ideologies that are very hateful are able to combine their labor in ways that they never could before. But this is the, um, this is the, 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 that's the downside of it. There's this upside of it, which is that, um, people come together to save one another in ways we've never seen before too. Yeah. Yeah. So would you say that, um, you know, when we seem to be moving towards uh, nationalism um, and away from uh, the globalism of the past, uh, you know, few decades, um, that walk away is kind of a kind of a guidebook or a, a parable of what those of us who don't want to go in that direction uh, could possibly do. Well, you know, it's funny because we, we talk about hyper-nationalism in the context of these like nationalist movements. But you know what those nationalist movements have in common with each other? They're networked across national borders, yeah. right? You know, isolationist Nigel Farage comes to America to to big up isolationist Donald Trump, who then joined forces to big up isolationist Marine Le Pen. They are globalist nationalists. It's a funny old world. Um, and, you know, I think that walkaway is... If anything, it's a story that tries to tackle a neglected area of the science fiction of abundance. Because when we talk about post-scarcity science fiction, we usually talk about manufacturing, you know, transporters or uh, 3D printers. And, you know, I've written books about that stuff. But um, the, the fact that there's a whole bunch of stuff somewhere that someone might need doesn't tell you much about whether they're going to be able to get it. That's really about logistics. And while technology has really changed manufacturing, the place where it's made the largest difference is in logistics, right? The reason China can fire a shipping container at, at America one per second, like a, like a rail gun, uh, every second of every day of every week of every year is because of logistics. And uh, logistics are like the age-old problem of our species, figuring out how to work together to coordinate our labor. That's like where we come from. That's That's when... Our, our ancient primate ancestors developed the part of the brain that is most modern, the, the neocortex, the new bark, uh, that concerns itself with managing our social relationships so that we can combine our labor, so that we can be superhuman and do more than any one human can do. And we have done so much with networks and logistics that we hardly even notice it because it's like it's ubiquitous. And digging into the idea that you could take that magic of logistics that lets us hang up a scaffolding like a wiki or a git server and then build an operating system or an encyclopedia on top of it 
with the kind of organizational overheads that we would nor commonly associate with like a bake sale, um, that imagining what you would do if you could run a whole world that way, if you could build a space program or even just a skyscraper with that kind of uh, fluid improvisational style that allows people to uh, resolve their differences by not having to agree on all that much. And when they come to points of irreconcilable difference, to just make another copy of the project and build it both ways. Uh, and, you know, you, you see that in the book, that there's a lot of talk about when that works and when that fails and what its particular failure modes are. But that's the thing I wanted to explore is like, what if we solve our problems of abundance and scarcity by being much better at getting stuff to where it needs to be? So that you, you know, it's the, like the zip car version of fully automated leisure communism, where the way that we resolve the fact that um, there aren't enough uh, lawnmowers for everyone to own one is we build unbelievably amazing 21st century lawnmowers that uh, just roam from lawn to lawn, trimming them all so that no one person has to own, service, and maintain and, and warehouse a lawnmower 14 days out of 15. Uh, and instead, we get like the greatest lawnmowers history can imagine without any of the downsides. To, but, could we make that a reality? Because I, I would really. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Florida and it, it's more like every three days. So I. I'm... Right. Well, you know, there's like bits of it at the margin, right? Like, you know, the, one of the tricks of science fiction is to take a thing that's happening a little and just imagine that it was happening a lot. It makes you makes you seem prescient if that just if that happens to come true. It's like predicting the present. Uh, and, you know, Zipcar is a pretty dang good version of it. And so is Tinder for that matter. Right. Uh, and so is so are lots of little location oriented social tools that let you go to the middle of town and send a broadcast message to your friends and say, like, is anyone in the mood for a movie? And then uh, just sort of all turn up at the same theater at the same time, like a like a extremely special purpose flash mob. You know, when I was when I was a kid going to the movies on Friday was a thing you would have to start by Thursday at the latest and usually on Wednesday. Yeah. Because, you know, you were like calling your friend's parents and leaving messages for them from pay phones in the hopes that they would call their parents and pick up the message and call your parents mm -hmm. and leave a message from a pay phone. You know, it took a lot of quarters to go to the movies <laughs> in, in 1982 or so. And we now have this astounding improvisational fluid way of coordinating our activities that, you know, on, uh, can seem banal. But by the standards of, of just a few decades ago, my, my boyhood as a 45-year-old, nothing short of miraculous. Yeah. But to get to that future, to get to that post-scarcity with any, with any degree of, of, of similarity, we have to be able to trust one another. We have to be able to live with one another. And, I mean, you touched on this, but um, you've written that, you know... I'm going to quote here that a belief in a bar the barely restrained predatory nature of the people around you is the cause of dystopia. And I think that's something um, that's sort of been part of our popular culture narrative for generations to like to not trust your neighbors, to not trust that somebody else out there might have your best interest at heart. Um, and it's becoming central to to our political discourse now. I mean, you, you talked about Farage and Trump and how what did you call it? Globalism global nationalism i mean i think yeah. i think another word for that is just xenophobia i don't think that they're actually nationalists i just think that they don't like the quote-unquote other 
Um, but a- apart from writing and reading and normalizing these optimistic utopian stories, how do we reverse that kind of thinking that, that we cannot trust anybody else? So normalizing is a really big part of it. And, you know, it's a thing that even the most predatory market-based arrangements do some of. You know, we get into Ubers these days, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a remarkable thing on its face. If the the thesis is that 99.9% of people are utter bastards waiting to come over and blow you away with a shotgun and steal your best socks the minute they think they can get away with it, then how is it that we get into all these Ubers with people? And I think the reality is that we have a mix of contradictory and unresolved intuitions about other people and that what the difference is between now and then is what's considered aberrant and what's considered normal and normalization is a key word here because it's one thing to say that under normal circumstances we mostly trust each other and get along and the people who are convinced that everyone else is is out to get them are um, beyond the pale that they have uh, that they are disordered in their theories of human action and in their um, moral center. And it's another thing to say that that's actually true and that everyone else is a hopeless Pollyanna. They, they could both describe the same objective situation about who does what to whom. And the difference is what happens uh, next. Because if you believe that that the people who think everyone else is red of tooth and claw are right, then it prescribes a different course of action. And, you know, I think that like, one of the things that um, our market economy gives us is a certain sense of having destiny that is that is not intertwined. That in a, um, a market economy, my gains are your losses. And so we don't share a destiny. My, my success can only come at the res- as the result of someone else's failure. And, you know, market purists will tell you, well, yes, but they grow the pie bigger. Mm-hmm. And so everyone benefits. But in the like at the micro scale where you and I compete for a job or a house or, a, uh, you know, or the, the, the same um, uh, material goods, then we are adversaries before we are friends. And, you know, it everyone including the most avid market capitalists concerns themselves with what happens when things fail not just what happens when they work you know there isn't an investor alive who doesn't ask about liquidation preference that's what that's who gets paid if the company falls apart instead Mm -hmm. of making a profit and so thinking about the liquidation preference of market capitalism is i think a worthwhile thing to do because while market capitalism produces some amazing things you know the competition in markets has produced this steady decline in the material energy and labor inputs to our physical objects, which has made a kind of abundance that we never dreamt of possible. Mm-hmm. You know, we, there's the, this line of the green left that says uh, a finite planet cannot experience infinite growth, but it can experience infinite process optimization where the amount of stuff that we need to accomplish the same level of material comfort goes down and down and down. And we've seen that for generations over the same period that our mistrust in one another is mounted. The, uh, the environmental consequences of owning a car have declined. Now, the number of people who own cars has increased. And so it's been something of a net wash, but there's, there's a, um, there's, there's some utopian post-scarcity stuff mm-hmm. lurking in that market story. And so one of the things that science fiction often tries to do is to see to what extent a technological phenomenon can be separated from its uh, social context or its um, 
uh, wider context to see whether, like, what does it look like if you develop, you know, this is what steampunk is all about. What does it look like if you develop uh, a, a highly uh, advanced uh, industrial society, but keep in place a kind of Victorian ethos, you know, and, and Neil Stevenson won the Hugo Award for that with his book, uh, The Diamond Age. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it's possible to love the machine and hate the factory that one of the stories that you can tell yourself after reading Walkaway is that we can realize those amazing dividends of industrialization and high productivity without having to pay the cost of predatory capitalism and these you know, transhuman immortal life forms called limited liability companies that view us as their inconvenient gut flora and externalize as many of their costs onto us, including as much pollution as they can get away with without being fined out of existence. and and you know, just imagining that that is possible is an important intervention in the world. So is that, would you say that that's the message that you want people to walk away, come uh, walk away with? <laughs> I mean, is, is that, is that like love the machine, hate the factory? I mean, is that what you want? Or is it more of a, let's just normalize this so we can move forward and get rid of these arcane beliefs and, and, and thought systems that we've been hanging on to for generations? Well, let, let me start with the caveat that uh, books are rarely about one thing or even a right. uh, tractable collection of things, and that even when they are, authors generally don't know it. Mm. Uh, so I don't pretend to be an authority on my own books. Ray Bradbury, who was way smarter than me, went to his grave claiming that Fahrenheit 451 was a book about the evils of television and had nothing to do with censorship. <laughs> and if he can get it wrong, then so can I. But that said, yeah, I want this book to be a book of hopeful Prometheanism, you know, a book about the possibility of not uh, saving the world through degrowth, through making every lord live like a peasant, but saving the world through progress, making every peasant live like a lord, but doing so in a way that radically reimagines the systems of hierarchy, control, and, and of kind of callous disregard for our, our shared destiny that characterizes the inequality we have now. Yeah. Um diving not not to get too nitty gritty but so the, the main character of walk away has 21 names um yeah. which you say right at the beginning you know he says was intentionally long and unique so that it wouldn't fit into a database and it would give him the right to legally use a whole bunch of subnames um right i have to ask was that the same rationale you had when you were naming your daughter yeah, Poesy, Emmeline, Fibonacci, Nautilus, Taylor, Doctoro. Right. We figured that middle names were things you got for free, and so we didn't have to constrain ourselves as we were trying to figure out which middle names to give her. <laughs> and so we went for all the ones that we really liked. Um, you know, there's there's a, another joke in, in his name that uh, I think people have so far missed, so I'm going to bring it to your attention because I think it's a good one, which is that his parents were members of the Anonymous Political Party, yeah. and they left when, when the Anonymous Party uh, instituted a real names policy and they gave him all these names as a as a protest against the sellout of their political leadership from the anonymous party. Yeah, I, I caught that. That was uh, I, I thought that was a brilliant aside. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, I I I mean, yeah, murder your darlings and all, but I'm very proud of that one. <laughs> I have to ask: Was uh, the opening scene of Walk Away was that uh, prompted by personal experience? Because as uh, you know, as as a forty-something, having been the old guy at the party, um, I found it very relatable. 
well, I'm certainly a 40-something who's finding himself the old guy at the party every now and again, for sure. And, you know, there, the, I am also now in the position of, of a full reverse where I remember being the bright young kid and saying, oh, I'm always the youngest person in the room and having all the old people in the room turn it, turn to me and say, yeah, us too. Until we weren't. <laughs> right. And now going, oh yeah, that does happen. You don't get to be the youngest person in the room forever. Eventually you're the person being told by some snot nose that they're always the youngest person in the room. And they're looking at you as though you are impossibly wizened. But <laughs> you know, I, I, I am generally speaking, enjoying uh, uh, incipient middle age. Uh, you know, there's some, um, the health problems with it are not necessarily the greatest thing, but the wisdom, the maturity, the stability and, and the, the kinds of relationships that you can form and maintain, you know, a, a parent child bond and, a uh, the, the, uh, a long-term romantic bond, uh, or even the the bonds with friends who have had more and more diverse experience, those are very satisfying. Hmm. Um, switching gears a little bit, talk talk to me about the new um, fair trade ebook platform that you're launching, which I think you're you're starting up it's with, with yeah with Walkaway. How, so how does it work? And um, I'm curious that because I was I was reading up about it, and that even though you've got um, the author and the publisher in, in mind, they're both factored into the equation. Have you gotten any pushback because it's its so different from what people are used to? No, my publisher, Tor, have been really great about it. And it's, its um, you know, it builds on a thing I've done for a long time with my audiobooks where I always retailed them from my website because Audible wouldn't carry them because they, they didn't have DRM on them. Audible has this deal where you have to lock your customers to their platform uh, as a condition of, of selling through it. And so even if you don't want the DRM, they make you have it. Mm -hmm. And so I've always sold my audiobooks through it. And the, you know, the downside is that I don't get access to Audible's platform, which distributes about 90% of the audiobooks in the market. But the upside is that I keep a lot more of the money from those audiobook sales. Cause even though I remit to Random House, you know, cause they published those early audiobooks, um, I keep the retail, uh, uh, slice of it and then I also keep the author's slice of it on the back end they give me back some of the money I send them in the form of a royalty mm -hmm. uh, and it's a thing that keeps my agents in the loop it keeps my publishers in the loop and it keeps me in the loop and it lets my readers kind of resolve uh, a couple of conundrums one is that oftentimes I hear from readers especially the really thoughtful and very um, avid uh, readers who say like what's the best way to buy a book to benefit you because, you know, the reason I'm shopping on Amazon is because I love authors. Right. Uh, I'm indifferent to Amazon uh, or even sometimes hostile to it. And the answer has historically been just, you know, buy it wherever you find it. But now I can say, actually, I can make twice as much money if you buy it from me as the retailer. And then I kick back to my publisher. My publisher kicks some of that back to me. I end up with 50% royalty. Hmm. You are a much more valuable customer to me. And at the, at the same time, it also lets my readers resolve a lot of the other difficulties of buying ebooks, like uh, if they don't live in an English-speaking country but want the English-speaking edition, most of the retailers won't sell it to them. And you know, there's loads of English-speaking readers all over Europe and the rest of the world who just want the English ebooks. And mm -hmm. the, the English print books are very expensive because they have to be imported, and the English ebooks are relatively cheap. And here's a chance for me to serve that market. 
Uh, and because those are open territory, those aren't those, uh, all of my publishers, my UK publishers, my US publishers, uh, all have non-exclusive rights to it. Those editions are my editions. So I keep 100% wow. of the money I get for my sales to Germany or Sweden. So each German I sell to counts as four Americans in terms of the amount of money that it you know puts in my kid's college fund. Uh, and then they also resolve the confusion of how to make the DRM work because DRM is like a giant support nightmare for users and for vendors. Uh, and it only exists not really to fight piracy because like it, it's pretty obvious once you start thinking about it that if you want to fight piracy, you shouldn't make the expensive version worse than the free version. And the free version is the one that you can download for free from the Pirate Bay or another website like it, just about as easy as you can buy it. And uh, the only difference between the two is that the free version doesn't come with a bunch of crapware that limits how you can read the book, whereas the for pay version uh, has is is encumbered with a million baroque contrivances that that only serve to get in the way. Now, there's the minus side that you have to figure out how to sideload the ebook. Mm -hmm. Got to get it onto your device somehow. But if you buy it, uh, you know, through a mobile device, it downloads to your mobile device. So you're ready to go. So. I mean, let's talk about DRM for a, a few minutes. It's, I mean, you're you're sure. you're an outspoken opponent. You know, it's that's not a secret. And I'm just playing devil's advocate. I'm not defending yeah. it. But do you see a situation where those restrictions, um, maybe not the the most baroque or the most arcane, but the restrictions that are there, uh, do they ever protect the artist, or are they always 100 percent of the time protecting the the distributor, or the publisher, or, or record label, whomever? So there's two dimensions to this, and neither of them look very good for the artist, I'm afraid. The first is technical, and the second is legal. So we do not know how to make a computer that can run all the programs except for the ones that piss you off. Mm -hmm. We only know how to make one kind of computer, and that's the general purpose computer that can run every program that can be expressed in in uh, um, symbolic language. That's That's the kind of foundation of computer science, that computers are Turing complete. And because of that, when we say, oh, well, we've developed a computer that won't copy your ebook without your permission, what we mean is we've developed a computer that runs a hidden program that tries to stop the owner of that computer from running another program that would make a copy. Mm -hmm. And that program has to be able to hide itself in equipment that its adversary owns and controls. And if anyone figures out what it's doing to hide itself and disseminates the fact of its existence, then anyone can break it because you can just run that program. You can download a program that cracks the DRM or if you don't want to do that, you can just download the version that someone's taken the DRM off of that's floating around on the web. So all it does is make the paid versions less attractive. It doesn't actually stop people technically for making copies, and it can't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the technical term for hiding secrets and equipment that you give to your adversaries from the practice of information security, the technical term for that is wishful thinking. <laughs> the way that we make security work is by not giving things to our adversaries that we don't want them to have. We don't make bank safes that are so good that we can keep them in the bank robber's living room instead of in the bank vault. Right. As soon as you put the cryptographic keys in a device that anyone can acquire just by getting a Netflix account or buying a Kindle or just installing the Kindle app on their device, all bets are off. And this is why DRM is built over the course of years by skilled engineers 
spending millions of dollars, and then it's broken in days by teenagers with hobbyist equipment because they are doing something fundamentally unsound, not, not leaving aside the moral questions and whatever. So there's this legal dimension that comes with DRM that is a necessary component. Once you accept that we want to make computers that will only run some programs and will refuse to run others, uh, then you need a legal regime that says that um, uh, no one is allowed to weaken that. No one is allowed to disclose the flaws and defects within that software. And certainly no one's allowed to make a tool to remove it. And so the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, which is mirrored in law all around the world, has this clause, Section 1201, that felonizes doing this. It's a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine to weaken DRM, regardless of the purpose. So on the one hand, you have security researchers who discover defects in systems that artists depend on to, be, to have integrity. And on the other hand, that are used by users for lots of things besides entertainment. So it's your phone that knows how to log into your bank account and what your doctor told you and what your lawyer told you and has a camera and a microphone and it watches you when you're in the toilet and in the bedroom. And security researchers who discover defects that are salient to both the user and the author, they're not allowed to tell the public about it. Hmm. So Google's video DRM for streaming video was broken for six years before a security researcher finally came forward to disclose that it had no efficacy in preventing piracy. And the only reason that security researcher came forward is because he was in Israel, which is the only industrial nation in the world that does not have a prohibition against disclosing defects in DRM. So all of the people who relied on it as rights holders, they were living in a fool's paradise. But meanwhile, that defect isn't just useful for copying videos. It's also useful for more generally compromising the device. And so you have users in their billions with these mobile distraction rectangles in their pockets that can be used to comprehensively destroy their lives in every way from asshole to appetite who are wandering around in total ignorance of material defects in that product that put them at risk of life and limb in order to safeguard these nonsensical entertainment interests. You know, that's being Huxleyed into the full Orwell. Such as? And if, hmm? Such as? Such as, well, you have a device that controls your pacemaker or that controls your, your insulin pump or that is the control surface for your home thermostat or for uh, the uh, uh, ignition system to your car. Mm -hmm. And the DRM in those systems is being used as a rubric to prevent security disclosures. GM just told the copyright office that if we allow drivers to know about defects that would allow strangers to drive their cars over the internet, that it might enable people to steal MP3s from the car stereo. And so therefore, security researchers shouldn't be allowed to disclose those defects, right? So, so this is a complete catastrophe. And what's worse, it upends the economic relationship between the artist and the retailer. You know, one of the problems that we have as artists is not just that it's hard to earn a living from our art, but that when our art is generating income, generally we're the last ones in line to get a share of it. Mm -hmm. And the way that you improve your situation in a world where the retailers and the publishers are part of the equation and they stick their hands in your pocket before you get to spend the money from your art is by having a better bargaining position over them, right? The more publishers there are, the better, uh, you know, your negotiating position is. And this is one of the things self-publishing has done is it's raised the floor on the worst deal that a publisher can offer you because it has to be better than the best deal you realistically expect you can get for yourself by mm -hmm. trying to do what Hugh Howey did. And uh, 
what DRM does is it locks readers to the uh, to the platform's uh, business. So every time you sell a book with Amazon DRM on it, that's that's uh, money that your readers will have to spend to buy the book again at Barnes and Noble if you and Amazon fall out and you try to drag them with you to a rival platform. So when Hachette, which is one of the big five publishers, had a dispute with with Amazon about how their books were sold, Amazon just said, fine, we're not going to sell your books anymore, but we're not going to let your readers unlock the Hachette books they already own to follow you to a rival platform. And since they were the only ones who could do that, a year later, Hachette, who published everyone from you know J.K. Rowling to everyone published by Little Brown in Orbit, they came back with hat in hand and capitulated to every single thing Amazon had asked them for. Hmm. And Random House, you know, a month later, when their deal came up for renegotiation, didn't even try to negotiate. They just caved to everything Amazon wanted. And so, you know, one of the hard problems we have is how to get people to spend money on our products. But an even harder problem is once they are spending money, how do we make sure we get some of it? Yeah. And if you surrender your negotiating leverage to Amazon by letting them lock your media up in their DRM, then you have lost the battle before it's even engaged. Well, I mean, I wanted to ask about that because, I mean, making money as an artist, making money on your own art, it's always been nebulous. and It's never been a sure thing. Sure. It's, al it's always been hard to make a reality. But now, I mean, in the Internet era, it's I think it's become even more so. It's... I, I'm not afraid to admit that I genuinely have no idea how some people make money online. You know, I, I don't know how, you know, people can become millionaires through their websites or their blogs or what, what, what have you. I, I know it's done. I don't know how it's done. Right. So in the absence of advances and royalties from something like a publisher or a record label, what, what do you tell young artists who might not have that name recognition that, that you'd have or, or a J.K. Rowling might have who can just go out and self-publish and still sell books? Like, what do you tell them? How, how, do, how sure. can somebody start off their career? They've written a book or they've, they've recorded an album. How do you distribute it on your own and, and get it out there and, and make money? So, you know, I actually wrote a book about this uh, <laughs> called Information Doesn't Want to Be Free right. that has some pretty specific advice which includes like if you don't have a theory of how your work how you are going to get your work into your readers hands or your listeners hands uh independently how you're going to get people to just care that your work exists enough to to come and get it let alone pay you for it then you probably won't succeed at doing it mm -hmm. and the authors that do it independently they tend to have hit on something that is unique to their circumstances. It is the intersection of who they are, what kind of media they make, and what kind of audiences exist for it. But let me back up one step here. Mm -hmm. So we are prone to a thing called survivor bias. Right. There was a great XKCD cartoon about it recently where they had a guy standing on a stage surrounded by bags of money. Oh, yeah, and he's I remember saying that something like, you know, I didn't know if I could win the lottery, but I believed in myself. And that's why, like, I mortgaged my house and yeah. sold my kids. And today I stand before you, a lottery winner, telling you that you can do it, too, if only you believe in yourself. Yeah. When at the first Future Music Conference in the late 90s, Alanis Morissette's lawyer was on a panel where he disclosed some uh, information that he gleaned. He said that the average, that 97% of the artists, the 97th percentile and down of artists who had been signed to a major record label before Napster were earning $600 a year or less off of it. So those are the lottery winners, right? Those are the tiny minority of all the people who ever picked up a guitar and dreamt of getting a record deal. That uh, th that tiny elite 
were of them 97% not close to earning a living. Yeah. So the reality of how you earn a living in the 21st century as an artist is by and large, you move to a country that's a liberal democracy with arts funding or you get a day job or both. Yeah. Because that's how we did it in the 20th century too. And that's how we did it in the 19th century. Um, and the idea that it's harder now to earn a living, I think is not right. I think the difference is that it's different earning a living. And it's still a crapshoot and it's still a major crapshoot. And it's still hard to predict who's gonna win. There's a, a great study from, I think, Duke, where um, they uh, simulated a social music recommendation network where you could uprate and downrate music and that would you know, increase the likelihood that someone else in the network would see it. Okay. Uh, and they randomized which music people saw in different rounds of the study. So they had different groups of students listen to music from this exclusively for some period to, to kind of uprate ones. And what emerged from it consistently was the power law distribution of fame where the best, the, the best loved artists were like 10 times more successful than the mm -hmm. second best loved artist. But every time you got a different best loved artist at the top, hmm. that, and, and so the lesson for that uh, to me is that I got spectacularly lucky and if I tell anyone else that anything but luck is the final arbiter of this, I'm just kidding myself that the reason I got spectacularly lucky is because of my amazing virtue. And that's like so obviously self-serving that I can't really do it with a straight face. Yeah. So I, I do think, though, that if we are going to um, ensure that artists get paid, apart from just creating funding for the arts, which I'm an enormous believer in, mm -hmm. that the most reliable method for ensuring that artists get paid is not concerning yourself with how the art generates money, but concerning yourself with how the money is distributed once it is made. Because giant corporations are pretty good at trying lots of different strategies to make money. But giant corporations who live in a buyer's market for art and always have and always will because there's always going to be more people making art than people want to pay for. Mm -hmm. And because art is to a certain extent interchangeable, that's the lesson of that study, that what you really want to be sure of is that once a giant corporation figures out how to make money from an artist, that the artist is first in line to get a share of that money. And the way you do that is by eliminating legal and structural impediments that give negotiating leverage to the corporations that are the intermediaries between the artist and their art. So every time we make it harder for, for a competitor of Google to emerge, like when we say, okay, well, you know, YouTube, when it started, all it took was like three guys in a garage and a bunch of hard drives. Uh, but today you need all of that and a hundred million dollars worth of content ID copyright policing software. Mm -hmm. What we're really saying is that there will never be another YouTube except that it will be a division of another Fortune 100 company and it will act just like YouTube. And what we're saying is that, that we, the end of competition for our copyright works to flow into a system like YouTube is at hand. And so YouTube no longer has to tempt us, they can just make demands of us. And that's why when YouTube uh, created a Spotify competitor, they uh, didn't ask artists on what terms they would uh, license the work for the streaming music service. They got the big four labels in the room, negotiated the terms for them, and then went to every indie artist that was using YouTube and said, you will take the terms that the big four mm -hmm. just created or you will no longer have access to YouTube to promote your work. And since there's no longer any real competition for YouTube, they all fell into line. And so effectively, you get a big four record deal, even if you don't sign to a big four record label now. 
right? So if we want to make sure that there's a buyer's market for our media, one of the things we need to do is make it easier to start a competitor to YouTube. And every copyright hurdle that we've put into YouTube to make them uh, more palatable to the big four record labels has been a thing that YouTube could easily overcome because the big four are never going to ask YouTube to do a thing that it can't do. Right. Say, you know, you must do this or just fold up your tent. But it hasn't been a thing that YouTube, when it was starting, could do. And so there's no more green shoots coming up. We only have these towering giant trees that have uh, shaded out all the new growth that could possibly occur. And we've stabilized this relationship at the top. And that means that all of us who are hoping for competition, hoping for people to try and tempt us in with great deals, we're left in the cold. And we can tinker at the margins with business models. But the reality is if all of our art has to flow through a couple of gatekeepers, those gatekeepers are going to screw us because they are not charitable foundations that exist to improve the arts. They are rapacious for-profit institutions that exist solely to enhance their shareholders. And their shareholders will re remove a CEO who makes them act like anything but a rapacious, uh, remorseless, transhuman life form. So, knowing that and, and, and having said that, is something like, are starting Kickstarters and having a Patreon, are, are those things that are becoming necessary for artists in the absence of competing formats? Or are they, do you see them as more of like temporary salves in, until something viable and, and competing to those big uh, outlets like YouTube? No, they actually find a way to grow. Competing formats in the sense that, like, the best deal that any big corporation that wants to make your work go, that best deal has to be, uh, or the worst deal rather, has to be the, better than the best deal than you could plausibly get from Kickstarter. And so, even the indie artists improve the lot of the people who are laboring in the sharecropper fields of the big publishers because, you know, my publisher has to be aware right. of, of Hugh Howie. Whenever we negotiate, for a new book, Hugh Howey is the is the specter in the room, mm -hmm. you know, that that haunts our negotiation. And they know that I can leave and try and do this indie thing on my own like you did. And that makes my worst deal better. And even when you're an, a first time novelist, um, the success of other first time novelists and other venues also improves the, the worst deal that you could get. So it's the last refuge. But, you know, the danger is that if they become very successful, Patreon, Kickstarter, whatever, is that they will be captured by the same forces, that someone will come to Kickstarter. Because Kickstarter is plagued by counterfeit problems. And it's a real problem, yeah. right? But if we solve the counterfeit problem on Kickstarter by creating a kind of de facto system where no one can make a new Kickstarter, but Kickstarter itself can solve its problems by um, instituting some kind of very expensive compliance regime that doesn't really solve the infringement problem but does at least satisfy the 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 top tier of this world then that then kickstarter will be on this path to having less and less competition that hones its its public facing goodness now kickstarter is in a slightly different position because they're a public benefit company so they have different economic incentives and their investors you know even the big institutional ones like union square ventures are on board with that because they're making pretty good money and they're making money in part because they've made this irrevocable commitment to acting in the public benefit instead of to their shareholders benefit and that lets people trust them and so that's actually a very positive development that that 
you know, and, and like I said at the start of this call, markets aren't don't solve all of our problems, but markets have roles in solving our problems. And, you know, one of the things that's pretty hopeful is that markets are actually selecting for companies that don't just say kind things, but that make those kind things into irrevocable promises that that lash themselves to the mast of their kindness so that they can't change their their mind later. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. There's a lot, a lot, a lot to chew on here. <laughs> yeah, it's not, you know, it's abstract and wonky and and hard, right? If yeah. it were easy, people would be just solving it. We wouldn't have these problems you know, if it were easy, yeah. right? And some of it is, you know, some of it's bound up with our economic system. We have a winner-take-all form of late-stage capitalism that, in every domain, is squeezing out competition and allowing for monopolistic practices that harms people in the supply chain. You know, there's there's like there's a reason that Trump uh, doesn't pay his contractors, and there's a reason that all the billionaires he hangs out with doesn't pay their contractors because they can, mm-hmm. right? They can get away with not paying the people who do the work, and they are no different to anyone else who is running a large corporation today. Anyone that they can get away with not paying, they don't pay, and it's that's not to excuse them or let them off the hook. They are sociopaths for doing it, uh, and they uh, th- and the remedy should be to destroy permanently and ban any institution that produces that outcome without anyone you can point to and say it's your fault. If you've managed to build an institution that wrongs the people who it's supposed to serve, but does so with total impunity because it's no one person's fault, it's a an emergent property of the institutional structure itself, then that institutional structure is not fit for civilized company and should be got rid of and you know that is a hard project but the fact that it's hard doesn't mean that we can solve it in some easy way by tinkering at the margin so so let me ask you this then if if bringing it back to walk away if if the idea of that optimistic utopian future is that people don't automatically assume that their neighbor has it out for them or that, you know, whenever somebody has an opportunity to tear them apart and steal their socks, like you said, that they'll do it. If we see corporations and businesses as our quote unquote neighbors and then we're all sharing the same space and the same resources and we all have generally the same wants and desires, how do we get to that point with those companies and corporations and individuals and artists all all living together? So there is a there is an interesting uh, nuance to the idea of trusting your neighbor, mm-hmm. and it's trusting your neighbor and viewing the people who act untrustworthily and who treat other people as though they are untrustworthy, viewing those people as aberrant, as deviant, right, as as beyond the pale and outside the norm, and uh, the the effect of this. Of, of that shifting kind of social acceptability is a change in what we as a group are willing to put up with, right? There's some behavior that, even though it's not illegal, that people don't engage in because the people around them will subject them to social reprisals for it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like if you were to, you know, a couple having a, a loud screaming match in a restaurant will eventually, like, there's there's a thing that happens 
that in almost every case sort of moves that out of the restaurant and behind closed doors, mm-hmm. right? And it, it, we don't need a law against it. It's just a thing that goes on, right? That it's part of our like social makeup. And, you know, walk away is like, it's not a story about everyone suddenly trusting each other. It's a story about a shift in whether or not the people who uh, act as though it's zero sum and they have no shared destiny are, are um, normal mm-hmm. or whether there's something wrong with those people. And uh, the belief that there's something wrong with those people is a very powerful force in the world. And until pretty recently, there was a belief that people who act like that had something wrong with them. We've had a real sea change in our in our views about what is and isn't acceptable. You know, Mitt Romney got into all this trouble for saying corporations are people, my friend. What he meant, uh, you know, and I think this is true, although, you know, I'll still make fun of him for having said it. What he meant is that corporations are made up of people yeah. and not that, you know, corporate personhood matters. Right. But corporate personhood is also a relatively recent innovation. And corporate personhood produces this um, kind of diffuse cloud of guiltlessness for actions that we would never tolerate from real people. And it may be that corporate personhood is a a bad deal that we're going to need to unwind to carry things forward. And maybe that that is how we find ourselves trusting corporations is by changing what a corporation is and can be and, and how, and how it acts. You know, there, there's that old saying that I'll believe a corporation is a person when Texas executes one. Um, <laughs> and the reality is we used to routinely execute corporations. We had very uh, lively antitrust enforcement, especially mm-hmm. in the post-war years when the wealth of the largest firms and individuals had been uh, largely uh, uh, largely eliminated through war debts and, and war damage. And so the uh, amount of energy that they could project or force that they could project into the fol- policy sphere was very limited. And so while they were in that weakened state, anytime they tried to reassert it through monopolistic practices, we were able to beat back. But you know, by Reagan, by 1980, the amount of capital that had accumulated in the pockets of the top 1% was so uh, large and disproportionate to their their role in society that they started to to once again project unstoppable force into the policy sphere, and we eliminated most antitrust enforcement. And now many of our markets are de facto monopolies, and we don't execute corporations anymore. Hmm. Uh, and you know, we we have the death penalty for everything but corporations, up to and including our lakes, oceans, streams, mountains, and cities, they all have the death penalty, yeah. but we don't have death penalties for corporations anymore. So will the uh, the next book be, um, they kill corporations, don't <laughs> Yeah, they shoot corporations, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The next book's another little brother book. I'm, I'm <laughs> about halfway through it. It's, uh, it's called Crypto Wars, and it's a little brother book for adults. So I'm okay. sort of aging up with the audience. Oh, great. Um, I wanted to just take a couple minutes here at the end, change, switch gears, yes. try to be a little bit more happy. <laughs> um, sure. I know you are a Haunted Mansion fan. Um, I am. And you recently revealed that you were on the team that created that incredible I ghost post box. Main writer, one yeah. of one of two writers on that team. That's right. Was that sort of a dream come true for you, despite all the writing and all the success you've had? <laughs> It was pretty awesome. You know, I had worked as artist in residence at the Imagineering Blue Sky Group before, uh-huh. but you know, you know that scene at the end of Indiana Jones where they take uh, 
this amazing thing that that Indiana Jones nearly died recovering that is one of the great things of our world and they stick it in a warehouse and never yes. tell anyone it's there and no one ever sees it again. Yes. That's a documentary about Disney. Yeah. That's like <laughs> their know? archives, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Disney, uh, for better or for worse, is very uh, concerned with confidentiality and projects that don't that don't come to fruition also never see the light of day and so the stuff that i did when i worked at um at imagineering i'm very proud of a lot of it but it's not out there where other people can see it and i'm kind of bummed by that um but uh the the best thing about working on those haunted mansion loot crates was first of all that they that they went out into the world and then i got to tell people i made them i mean even just having them out in the world was itself fantastically almost indecently satisfying <laughs> but then but then being able to take credit for them was really wonderful yeah where, where did um real quickly and then i'll let you go because i know we've, we've run up against time but where did your love of the haunted mansion come from like do you remember your first ride through? oh yeah yeah no i was bitten by a radioactive haunted mansion in 1977 nice. <laughs> uh i was i was six years old they still had the um the ticket books mm-hmm. and we uh were um staying in my grandparents condo in in fort lauderdale we were visiting them and we uh my parents and i we drove to uh orlando got a room in a motel and on our last night we um had one e-ticket left and it was closing time and you know my parents had a little argument about whether i was old enough to see the haunted mansion i was already into monsters and ghosts and stuff and i was like i i insisted and it was the last ride of the day and we were virtually the only ones on it and the cast member was amazing and really hammed it up and the ride is a great ride and then they this was the golden age of haunted mansion merchandise when randotti was making all these plaster skulls and plaques and stuff Mm -hmm. and i and, and they had these great latex masks and magic tricks and gimmicks and i mortgaged my allowance to the year like 2075 to buy so much of this crap and we got in our rental car and started driving back to fort lauderdale and i fell asleep in the back seat and I woke up the next morning in my grandparents' condo, and uh, none of my stuff was there. And I said, where to go? And they said, oh, well, the car broke down last night, what? and we were stranded. You never even woke up, but the, the rental agency sent out a replacement car, and we transferred you to the backseat of the replacement car. We must have forgot all your stuff. Oh. And I and it was gone. Oh, no. And when we went back to Disney World a couple of years later, it was, it, it was no longer for sale. And some of it has never been listed for auction on eBay. It only You can see it in Jeff Bam's website, um, hauntedmansion.com, which was a domain I had. I gave it to him for, for the site. <laughs> Um, you can see it on Jeff's site, the, some of these things. So I know they existed, but literally they've never gone up for sale. Uh. They've never been auctioned off. Uh, and um, it's a great, you know, rosebud in my uh, in my personal Citizen Kane. <laughs> and, uh, and I've just been obsessed with it ever since. Is the Orlando house your favorite? That is an interesting question. I just went on it for the first time since they added the digital effects. Mm-hmm. And now I'm kind of of more than one mind. I really want to go on the one in Shanghai, in Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. That's yeah. got a free-ranging vehicle. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't seen that one. It's entirely um, different. Oh, I know. I mean, yeah. I was at Imagineering when they were built. Oh, okay. So like, yeah, yeah. I, know how, <laughs> I know what it's like. Yeah. I just haven't I haven't, I haven't actually ridden it. it. Yeah. 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 But I am a great fan of the Disneyland one. I think of the two, it's my favorite, but I don't like the uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas overlay. Right. And so 
uh, for reliability, I would give the Florida one or even the Tokyo one, which is fairly similar to the Florida one with a little more fit and finish, but less modernization. Mm -hmm. uh, I would give give them rank. I like them all, you know, yes. I like them all for their own reasons. So the Florida one, the Tokyo one is so true to the original Florida one. And the Florida one has had some some modernizations, some of which are great and some of which not so much. You know, the Escher staircases are great. Mm -hmm. The video effect at the end was a lot more impressive before Instagram started doing face recognition. And like that video effect was being routinely recreated by people's pocket computers. Yeah. Uh, the, the California one, you know, must needs when the devil drives. It's got that long corridor to take you under the berm. And they did some really cool junk with it. Uh, the Hatbox Ghost is amazing. Yeah. Everything you could have asked for, he for really you know, a, a revival of something that that um, was from the original Imagineers' imagination. You know, Mark Davis original with 21st century technology. But they turn it into a dumb Tim Burton ride for four months a year. I know. So, <laughs> so you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. Oh man, you're gonna have to come back just so we can geek out about the haunted mansion. We'll, we'll do yeah, that. Yeah, totally. Other you time. know, I spent a night with a maintenance crew at the California one, and I they have a, a like overnight in the haunted mansion. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. They have a maintenance shop, like a, a machine shop, and I have a washer from it. Wow. So in the haunted mansion, there's a machine shop for fixing these bulky like four way linkages and you know twelve volt DC motors with fan belts on them. Uh, which is like 95% of the technology in that ride and you know lights with fader dimmer switches uh, but um, I, I, I took a washer they said I could so if it ever falls apart for the one of the washer you know where that washer is <laughs> Amazing. You're definitely going to have to come back. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Corey, thank, thank you so much for your time. This has just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. So Anthony, you were just telling me um, you mentioned something about shipping containers, which I know you are uh, deeply in love with. Um, any, anybody, <laughs> I know nobody listens to our Edge of the Empire role-playing game, um, but we have an ongoing joke about crates and shipping containers and getting locked in them but i, I think um, we still have a con uh, a character locked in uh we our do. original crate yeah our original crate we've been playing for months now and he's actually never been able to t time it up with us and he's never been able to play with us so he's still locked in a crate somewhere still, i, it, I uh, fear that he's dead he's he's like three planets behind us at this point <laughs> sad so no, anyway I, yeah <laughs> i i will readily admit um i i did fade off for a bit in our conversation with cory um because he, he Went, as soon as he mentioned railgun uh, shipping containers or a shipping <laughs> container railgun, yeah. I just I, that I, I had a whole story just kind of played out. Like, that, that's, <laughs> how would that work? And what would that look like? And how could I use that? And would it what? get me my Reaper miniatures faster? If, <laughs> Have you been able to uh, take it anywhere since we had the conversation? No, no, no. <laughs> other, other than wishing that uh, you know Amazon could just shoot things directly into my house. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which give them time. I'm sure give they'll figure time. out how to do. Oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Oh no, Amazon's um, going to hear this and they're going to weaponize this for sure. <laughs> like, That's brilliant. Let's <laughs> weaponize our delivery system. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we had a. You know, we talked about DRM quite extensively, which I, I mean, I guess is, is to be expected if you know anything about Corey. But oh, yeah. um, I have to admit the the end of you know, our conversation there when we started talking about Disney and the Haunted Mansion and the uh. the, the, uh, the subscription box that he worked on. Um, I seriously could just have him back and we could just talk Haunted Mansion for an hour, I think. That, that needs to happen because... I think it does. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, obviously, if you've uh, read any of his stuff, you know that he is a deep well of uh, yeah. of Disney knowledge, and uh, he is man that that he had that queued up and ready to go, didn't he? <laughs> you have to be. You gotta yeah. always be on it when you have a love like the Haunted Mansion or or Pirates or whatever it is. You, you know, it's, if it, if it runs deep, it's it's always right there at the surface too. So it's oh, somebody yeah. asks you about it, you can just start talking right away. When he mentioned e-tickets, I, I, I squeed yep. a little bit. I'm like... <laughs> Somebody who knows what that means. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Anthony, it was an absolute pleasure having you back. We're going to do this again. Uh, spoiler alert for those listening, we will do this again. Anthony will be back. Um, and uh, we have one right now we've, we've been trying to set up for for weeks now. Um, but it's uh, that's kind of out of our hands. She's, she's a little bit... Um, She's she's cagey. <laughs> she's cagey. She's cagey. She's very busy. She's got a she's, she's a, a hectic busy. a hectic schedule, and it's just trying to find a time just to, to slot ourselves in. Hmm. Yeah, she, she's <laughs> she, she's um, likely hanging from something somewhere. She is, or she's out there, you know, saving the world, probably. Exactly. Yeah. Um, anyway, you can. I said this at the top, but we are at the GBB podcast, Facebook, Twitter. I don't think that we're on Instagram. Justin is feverishly working away on a website that we will eventually have ready. Um, Anthony, where can people find you? They can find me at uh, at Sunstreaker eighty four on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I am at the Roarbots, both places as well. And Justin, in his absence, we will still still um, give him a little credit. Uh, he is at 140JustinC, so you can go find him and Anthony and me online and chat with us and let us know that you hated our interview with Corey or that you loved our interview with Corey and what you want to hear more of because we have, we have a few um, uh, vocal fans who always tell us what they want to hear or give us suggestions about people that they want to see on future episodes, and we are absolutely open to that. So if you have a type of person, if you have a very specific person that you would like to have on the show or hear on the show... Uh, let me know, and I will add that person to the list and see what I can do. Um, always want to um, get fresh voices on, and uh, if, we, if there's somebody that we haven't talked to, you know, a type of person we haven't talked to, um, Justin always jokes that somebody's eventually going to ask us to talk to a crossing guard, and uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to have a crossing guard on the show. And if that's really where your heart is, let me know, and I'll see what I can do. Um, but until next time, this is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Add us to your subscription list. Um, let us know where you're listening. Let us know what you like. Reach out online. Talk to us. And uh, we will see you next week. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.